Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I'm a psychotherapist, teacher, consultant, and most importantly, a wounded healer, living and working in Chicago, Illinois. On this show, I interview folks in a variety of healing professions, and we discuss the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. We're not just focused on individual healing, but also healing on the collective level from white supremacy, late-stage capitalism, and the patriarchy. Thanks for joining us. Hello, beautiful humans. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I am so delighted that you are here to share this time with me today. So it is early November as I'm recording this and it is finally starting to get chilly and I've got a very cozy sweater on today and I can't tell you how happy that makes me. And we have just experienced the end of daylight savings time, which means that it gets very dark very early. And this is my least favorite part of living in this side of a time zone, uh, that it starts to get dark really early. But the thing that I'm trying to lean on in this time as I'm losing the daylight and trying to enjoy as much sunlight as I can is that these are the cycles, right? This is a natural cycle of the earth to get dark in certain parts of of the earth at certain times of the year. And that's not bad. It's not wrong. We have just been, I guess, raised to, to believe that we should still be as productive in all times as possible. And it's right now, this is time when we're supposed to be going inward. We're supposed to be getting cozy under blankets and warming ourselves by fire, right? We're not supposed to necessarily be producing at the same speed. And I was reminded of this a little bit by um, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. I've talked about her before. I did her embodied social justice course and was just doing, she had a, a, a liberation challenge and is really calling people to do the deep work of liberating themselves. And one thing that she said was, we must be still enough to feel ourselves and quiet enough to hear ourselves to differentiate between internalized oppression and external oppressive forces. And that stopped me in my tracks and also made me angry because although I do meditate every day, I get in my 20 minutes without fail, that's the only time really, that I quiet myself. And this is a time of year that's sort of calling for that. And I've, I've been getting frustrated with myself because I don't have the executive functioning online that I feel like I've had previously. And I've been trying to figure out what's quote unquote wrong with me, right? Is this like a post COVID cognitive issue? Is this because I moved? Is this because I'm grieving, selling my business? And the truth is like when I slow down and just calm down, it like it doesn't matter. Like this is what's happening right now. And in this moment, I am giving myself grace to just be here and recognize that I can't move as fast as I used to. And that means I'm not going to be able to accomplish as much as I used to. And that's okay. And we're all we're all still going to be fine. (laughs) Oof, for somebody who like lives her life by accomplishing things. It's such a hard thing to say. And I'm trying every day to stop objectifying myself quite so much, but still, you know, when these little pieces pop up, it's like, oof, still there, still very there. 
So anyway, that's what I am working with right now. And I hope that you two are allowing yourself some time to shift with the season and allow some more slowness, some more inwardness, some more contemplation. So anyway, thank you. So if you are a listener of the show and really enjoy it, you could do me a big old fave by rating and reviewing us on Apple podcast. So you, you just go to your little Apple podcast app and please and thank you hit five stars and even better if you want to write a little something to let me know how this impacts you. And I have been known to read these out loud. So if you would like uh, like your 15 seconds of fame, please, <laughs> please feel free to do that. All right. So on to today's guest who I am so excited to share with you and was so excited to have this conversation with just a lovely, lovely human. So Asher Panjuris is a chronically ill, white, non-binary psychotherapist, clinical consultant, podcaster, and co-founder of Kintsugi Therapist Collective. They are a queer parent to a super rad human and two dogs and reside on stolen Nipmuc and Pocumtuck land. Please enjoy my amazing conversation with Asher Panjuris. I'm really excited to share a new offering with you all. Wounded Healers as Leaders is a support and working collective for group therapy practice owners who want to lead from the heart while building a thriving ethical business and step into conscious leadership with courage. Running a group practice is challenging both practically and emotionally. There's absolutely no way to know everything about running a therapy practice. And even though you may be a solo boss, to run a practice, do it well, and maintain your mental health is nearly impossible to do alone. Meetings will be held twice a month with one meeting dedicated to the logistics of running a practice, while the second monthly meeting will be structured as a support group for the emotional components of carrying a business on your shoulders. This group might be for you if you're a group therapy practice owner with one to five years experience and less than 15 employees. For more details and to register, visit tinyurl.com slash wounded healer leaders. That's tinyurl.com slash wounded healer leaders. Hello, Asher. Welcome to Conversations with the Wounded Healer. Thank you for having me. Hello. Yeah. You have such a wonderful podcast voice. It's like the NPR voice, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> That's so sweet to hear. It's really nice to hear that. Thank you. I don't know exactly yeah. what that means, but I, yes, thank you. Well, it's not the newscaster voice because there's a newscaster right. voice. There's an NPR voice. You know, it's the sweaty balls voice. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? When they talk like this, it just sounds lovely. Wow. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to lean into, intro. I'm going to try to lean into that somehow. I love it. Yeah. Yes, please. Well, do you want to introduce yourself to folks who might not have come across you before? Sure. Yeah. Well, my name is Asher Panjuris and I am, I have a lot of different things, I guess, uh, as we all are. I am a psychotherapist. I'm a queer parent to a human and to two dogs. I facilitate groups and I'm the podcast host of a podcast called Living in this Queer Body. And I also am very proudly the co-founder and co-director of Kintsugi Therapist Collective, a new 
relatively new adventure, I guess, that I've undertaken with my friend and colleague, Onyx Fuji. Who will also be on the show. I heard that. I heard that. So yeah, maybe we'll talk about that at some point, but that's a really cool thing I'm I'm really excited about right now. So yeah, those are the things. Those are the jams. Awesome. Well, I love a good therapist origin story. So would you mind telling us what led you to this interesting profession that we find ourselves in? Yeah, definitely. It's a really interesting question to ask right now, especially because I am kind of in the process of, I'm not one of the people that's like burning my therapy license or anything like that right now. Although probably at some points I've felt like doing that, but I will say that I'm in kind of a, a sort of career shifting moment where I'm working a little bit less with, I closed my private practice for a while for mostly for kind of health related reasons, but As a result, it's sort of interesting because my identification as a therapist is is really feeling like it's coming up really strongly right now as I'm moving more into consulting and group facilitation. I'm sort of like, what happened to me as a therapist? So that identity is very, um, I have a complicated relationship to it. But technically, I'm Mm -hmm. trained as a um, clinical social worker and I did not always know that I wanted to be a therapist. In fact, I spent quite a bit of time wandering around, I don't know, waiting tables and doing lots of things. I went to art school. I went to graduate school, art school. I kind of explored the possibility of proceeding into academia and teaching Hmm. and getting my PhD. And... It was sort of in that moment when I was in graduate school that I was really introduced to psychoanalytic thinking and psychoanalytic frameworks for kind of exploring film, actually film and video, which is something that I was, I was making videos in art school and I was introduced to sort of psychoanalytic thinking when it comes to analyzing film, really the whole world of like giving language to unconscious process. I hadn't really encountered that in such a like kind of poetic and evocative way. Creative way. Really creative way. And I was incredibly drawn to that at the same time that I was realizing that I was less drawn to teaching or a life in academia. I was really more interested in people's stories. And that was a personal narrative. And that's a lot of what I was actually doing with the video work that I was doing was kind of Hmm. trying to capture and capture for myself, but understand people's stories. And so being exposed to kind of psychoanalytic thinking and particularly some thinking around the, just like the depth psychology and realms of the unconscious, unconscious processes that led me to not directly do anything with it, but to kind (laughs) of, it really like provoked something interesting in me. And then to be honest, I really ended up going to graduate school to become a clinical social worker when, after I had a child and wanted to find needed reliable income, I was working though 
at the time that I'd made that decision, I was working at an eating disorder treatment center as sort of like a frontline mental health counselor or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that experience was really kind of foundational to me deciding to go to school to become a therapist. In addition to this kind of like other seed that was planted when I was in art school, I think one of the things that was really most compelling about that was that I was working with people who had experienced and were working through, you know, really profound cumulative trauma, but also it was manifesting in in their bodies, you know, and I had my own experience, kind of confounding experience of early childhood, ongoing kind of confusing traumatic experiences that I felt like I knew were playing out in kind of some somatic ways, not specifically at all actually in disordered eating, but I could really relate to this idea of the people that I was encountering or working with, they were working with their parts. They were working with these Mm -hmm. kind of wounded parts that were manifesting, you know, somatically. And Mm -hmm. I felt really empathetic to that. And I also felt intuitively, there's something intuitive about working with people a lot of the folks at this particular treatment center it actually is the treatment center where if anyone who's listening is familiar with Dick Schwartz and internal mm-hmm. family systems, it's where he really developed his theories around oh, internal really? family systems as at this eating disorder treatment center in Missouri, where a lot of people had a diagnosis of dissociative identity disorder and so had kind of this real experience of very clear kind of different parts of self essentially mm-hmm. and that we were working with. And so I had that entire, I had all of that exposure before I even started graduate school yeah. and started my career. And so I had sort of a, it was very intense, but it was also really I think it really helped me clarify even before I started graduate school and started my career, it clarified why this field was so compelling for me and has helped me navigate my way and and helped me like stay with these core kind of ideas around really wanting to help people who help people and concurrently help myself essentially understand, you know, how the body holds and metabolizes trauma and figure out ways to live through that. And that's how, you know, kind of from a logistical and conceptual way, that's how it it happened. But yeah, there are probably earlier rumblings of being in this profession from a much earlier age that I'm somewhat aware of, but I think Mm -hmm. got a little bit it became very cloudy because I was raised Catholic and I was raised in like a very religious household. And Mm. my association with being in like a quote unquote helping profession was doing essentially charity work, Yeah, which, you know, social work has its very strong history in Mm -hmm. a top down, really like oppressive models of, helping and oppressing at the same time. So I I think I had a hard time 
imagining myself into this role because of that history that felt fraught for me. Yeah. Still feels a little fraught. I mean, definitely feels fraught, but it, yeah. um, I think that prevented me from being like, yes, I want to become a therapist when I grow up. Mm-hmm. That typical, like everyone comes to me to talk about their problems type of story. It's like, yeah, that was, that was all there. But I think I wanted to disavow the, um, some parts of that. Right. And not having seen a model that felt congruent, right? It's hard to imagine that for yourself if you've never encountered it. No, definitely not. And I didn't have the like, oh, I had an amazing therapist when I was younger that really helped me. I didn't have, you know, access to that. I since have, of course. And Mm -hmm. that has helped me tremendously to kind of clarify my professional identity. But no, I didn't have any of that modeling really. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, it took me a while to find my way, still finding my way. I think there are a lot of us, though, who started in the arts and then something cascades into and into being a therapist. And I hear when you talk about like documentaries, I also think about investigative journalists Mm -hmm. and therapists. It feels really similar. I feel like I could have been an investigative journalist in another life. Totally. Yeah, I think so. And I think that what I appreciate about that comparison maybe is just the idea that it's actually a creative field. Yes. It's full of a lot of really curious people who are um, interested in thinking creatively about the individual and collective psyche. And so that's what I'm most drawn to. So I agree. Yeah. I have, I like hearing stories about that where people are like, Oh yeah, that makes sense to me. You know, like, of course, you follow that path. It feels very meandering to me, but it does have some some coherence to it, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And who cares if it's meandering too, right? Well, <laughs> yes. I mean, that's the story of my life, actually. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, tell us more about, and the word that wants to come out is kitsune, and I know that's not it. What is the name for your collective? Right, kintsugi. So Kintsugi. Right. So my friend and colleague Onyx came up with the concept, but did not come up with the concept of Kintsugi. So Kintsugi is the Japanese art of repairing... Oh, the gold! Yeah. Pottery, broken pottery. Yeah. With gold. And so essentially one of the kind of underlying ideas is, which is very on brand with this podcast, Conversation with the Wounded Healer, like the idea that our wounds are sort of our... I don't want to say our gifts. I heard this line of a song the other day that was like, our wounds are our crowns. Hmm. And I really liked that. The idea of like elevating our wounds, our woundedness in a way. I mean, I think sometimes it doesn't quite work that way, but I think Kintsugi is in some ways we are trying to, through the Therapist Collective, we are trying to work with care workers most broadly, but therapists who are in some ways needing to relearn how to relate to their profession and how to relate to, for sustainability reasons, to kind of relate to themselves as being able to draw on their experiences, their traumatic experiences, their difficult experiences. It's obviously like it's against the blank slate you know, kind of model, but it is really leaning into this idea of what happens when we as kind of healers, therapists, 
care workers really do sort of not just conceptually, not just tell our patients that like, it's great to be, you shouldn't be limited by your traumatic experiences, but we actually ourselves embody this notion of leaning into and being more transparent, at least with ourselves about how impacted we are impacted by the world and by collective trauma, but also how, again, back to the creativity, like how creative we can all be in reassembling our selves and our lives, our parts, and that doing that should be celebrated. That's the gold part, you know, like it should be Mm -hmm. celebrated and made beautiful rather than pathologized. Yeah, yeah. There's a major shift and a reimagining of our field right now. And I'm really curious what you're seeing on on your end. Yeah, a couple things. I'm feeling a lot of things for myself, right? And then I'm seeing things reflected in a lot of the people I supervise or consult with and people that are in this collective. We could call it burnout. We could also call it a shift trying to find as a result of the burnout, as a result of kind of trying to be care workers in an ongoing chronic pandemic, while we are alongside our clients really having to navigate very difficult times kind of relentlessly, just like relentless. And I think because of that, we are, and I'll speak for myself, I have... And this is kind of how the Therapist Collective came about is that I really came up against the real edge of kind of not being able to go on doing things the way I was doing them, which is to say in my particular experience, I live with chronic illnesses. I have not For the majority of the time that I worked as a therapist, my clients had no idea about that. They didn't know much at all about my life. And so I spent so much of my career as a clinician trying to minimize the kind of specificity of who I am. Mm. And I think there's something about the pandemic and moving to Zoom and like having all these therapists, you know, doing therapy out of their bedrooms and, you know, the kind of like exposure that clients have had to our personal lives, you know, this forced exposure. But I think the Therapist Collective came out of a lot of discussions between Onyx and me because we both are chronically ill and we both are parents We both have been solo parents for periods of time and the hell that we both put ourselves through for years to kind of contort ourselves into like reliable reparative attachment figures is what we thought was, that's what we thought we had to do to be successful, not only successful, but good therapists, you know, like helpful to help people who are dealing with profound attachment trauma. Right. And I think in some ways I'm still figuring out, you know, how to, I wish I had it all figured out how to be in this field more sustainably. But what I have learned and what I think a lot of people are learning is that being more transparent about 
the impact of the both the work and the world on me as a human, a limited, you know, disappointing human. Yes. Yes. Has been really transformative for my clients and really has been the honest way to work, but it it also feels like one of the ways of working that doesn't lead to such kind of profound burnout, like yeah. to the point where people are leaving the field. Mm-hmm. Both of us kind of honestly feel like we have to catch people before they just leave, yeah. which is not to say that people shouldn't leave. I mean, some people should leave. And, mm-hmm. I, and in some ways, you know, I think it's a profound reimagining of how we are in relationship to the work that we are doing. So, I mean, for example, just disclosing that I have a chronic illness is not enough or it wasn't enough. You know, I mean, I, over a period of years, I really experimented with letting, especially some of my longer term clients in on a bit more of what it meant Mm -hmm. to be me. Yeah. And that involved occasionally and increasingly over the past year, like having to cancel or reschedule sessions. But it's not just about scheduling and rescheduling. I think that's sort of a limited way of thinking about this. I think that's one of the ways that these Mm -hmm. issues manifest. But I do think it's also about bringing, even if I don't speak about it out loud or, you know, kind of take it up with my clients, I think bringing more of my own awareness or own transparent, like transparency within myself about how much I'm being impacted by this work or how much I'm being impacted by the pandemic. I'm immunocompromised. I take medication that compromises my immune system. Mm. It's been really scary. I Mm -hmm. lived in New York at the beginning of the pandemic. Like I was... It was really scary. It was also really scary for my clients. Yeah. It actually still is really scary for me to navigate. And so I think, you know, I'm really influenced by the work that disability justice activists have been doing for ever, essentially, which is, you know, kind of bringing the personal more into the work that we are doing and talking about access needs, talking about our inner lives and also the impact of social structures on our inner lives. And I think that's a little bit of what, I'm not sure what you are noticing, but some of those shifts have felt really kind of feel like when I'm saying it out loud, it should just be obvious. Like how were we doing it before? But I know you, you know, I know you have a good practice. I know you kind of watched some of these things unfold. I I mean, I'm sure you have a perspective on this, but it almost feels like these realizations shouldn't be as profound as they are. But I think if you're in the field, it actually is pretty radical to kind of lean into some of these parts of our identities. Well, I think of it as like the humanity of the therapist being able to be in the room without taking up more space than we should in the relationship. And this is a side note, but completely connected at the same time. Have you seen the patient on Hulu yet? Yes. I don't know about you, but the whole thing I'm thinking about is this giant metaphor of therapists feeling like we have been attacked by some clients. The objectification 
I mean, God, right? Like probably after we started to realize that the pandemic wasn't going to go anywhere, probably like after George Floyd and all of this, it just felt like my poor intake person was just a barrage of, of hatred and anger and vitriol because we weren't able to fulfill people's needs. You know, clients saying like, you're not helping me and you're I'm not feeling any better. All of this, like the objectification being thrown at the therapists. And I was like, we are human too. We are feeling this too. We are not immune from any of this. And so I need to have in that way, a reciprocal relationship with my clients that they can recognize my humanity. You don't have to care more than just knowing that I am human and I am going to be here and have feelings too. Mm -hmm. There are power dynamics that will never be equitable, but that they're the kind of shared humanity and also shared impact, I think is, is something that has been helpful to I think it is helpful. You're right to talk about it and not, I agree with you that it isn't about like talking about our experiences in an imposing way as if we're, we're trying to, right. I'm definitely oriented in influenced by relational psychoanalysis. So I think there are, there are ways that sometimes we can be a little bit too involved in the idea of like what's happening between us and like everything has meaning and you know yeah that can get a little too much sometimes i think we can over overdo it at times but i do think that setting up expectations i mean the fact that you're bringing up your intake person it's like yeah setting up expectations with clients around this kind of shared humanity is really, and what therapy is now, you know, like what is therapy and what do you expect from it? I think the harder Mm -hmm. experiences I had were actually were with patients that I had worked with for years, you know, sometimes multiple times a week who I had sort of conditioned essentially to expect me to not impose myself Mm. in the therapeutic space. You know, I was like, I'm not, Mm. I'm completely, I mean, it was all sorts of internalized ableism and I'm well, I'm good. You know, I'm good over here. Like welcome into my space and let me help you. You know, it was like a customer service job or something. Mm. And, and I really think that in doing a lot of my own untangling of my internalized ableism that I've been able to kind of be more transparently vulnerable with, with my patients. And yeah, I don't think it makes things better fully, but I think it really helps to dismantle the idea that like the top down idea of the, the therapeutic right. relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you talk about internalized ableism, I'm just thinking about the, I feel like maybe this has happened before in our profession, but I haven't been around, so I didn't know, but it feels like an awakening to just how rooted in white supremacy our field is. And it's not just you who expected you to be well, but your clients often expect you to be well too. And it's capitalism, right? It's all of the ableism, all of these things that are telling us that we have to show up in a certain way. And you're right. It's this sort of top down. Like I have the answers. Like somebody even said to me the other day, like, oh yeah, somebody goes to a therapist for your advice. And I'm like, not in my therapy room. You come to me because I'm going to support you and 
giving yourself your own advice. And sure, I might point out some other options for you, but it's not my expertise that you're coming for. And they're like, what? I'm like, yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like the fantasy in some ways. I mean, right. I've been, I certainly have been guilty of that myself. Like I would love my mm-hmm. longtime therapist to give me all the answers sometimes, but I, know, right? but I, I agree with you that, yeah, that there's a lot to that idea of disavowing again, you know, like our woundedness. Yes. And yeah, I think, yeah, there's a lot to it. I mean, I don't want to put this, I'm hesitant to, to sort of, I feel like I have really complicated feelings about like these online therapy platforms and all sorts of things like that. But I, I do know your, I have listened to your podcast, so I do know what your opinion <laughs> is, but I guess I, I don't know what my stance is exactly, but I do know that the proliferation of these kind of like therapy on demand in any kind of way that text therapy, you know, you just like have a therapist Mm -hmm. um, whenever, wherever in your ear, on your, you know, phone, wherever. That's what podcasts are for. (laughs) (laughs) Just listen to a podcast. Don't text your therapist. (laughs) A therapist podcast, maybe even. Um, Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I agree. I think that there's something about how deeply the people who are coming to us are being influenced by these messages Mm -hmm. around instantaneous healing yes really feels influenced by like healthism the way that there is this idea that like the quicker you can get to an able trying to think of the word i'm looking for there's almost like a purity complex to it like it's like you're going to your therapist to sort of purify you of these like trauma demons Mm -hmm. and then Somehow, you know, in 12 quick sessions, you can feel better, be a more productive little capitalist minion, you know, and that's not why I chose to become a therapist. I certainly want people to like live lives of more ease and less suffering. But I increasingly, you know, as I get older and uh, understand this more, like, I can't control that. No. You know, I mean, it's we're working in a wildly broken system. And so the more we mm-hmm. talk about that or at least model, go back to the modeling, like at least model for our right. clients that I'm not an app. You know, I don't live inside of an app. Like, right. I'm a human. Right. And that is what you get from right. me specifically. And mm-hmm. I think that can be very reparative, actually. But it is yeah not immediately very gratifying sometimes <laughs> to like to encounter another human um who has who's complicated right While Wounded Healers as Leaders is focused on group practice owners, Wounded Healer virtual groups are for individual mental health practitioners. I'll be offering our third round of Wounded Healer virtual groups starting February 2023. In our lifetime, it's never been more challenging to be a mental health professional. And as Wounded Healers, we are called to attend to our own recovery and transformation in order to support the healing of others. Just listen to what past participants have shared about what made this group special to them. The community, the individual members and the group as a whole, the dedicated, intentional time to come together and connect in an authentic way. The group sharing and the chakra teachings, Sarah's humor and support. 
feeling less alone in some of the professional struggles I'm feeling. The community aspect. It's great to be with others in the industry and receive their feedback and support. Wounded Healers virtual groups will meet for eight weeks, Monday evenings on Zoom starting February 6, 2023. For pricing and information and to register, visit www.tinyurl.com slash woundedhealersvg-3. That's tinyurl.com slash woundedhealersvg-3. I'm always thinking about the the root of things, right? And so the apps, the thing that's good about the apps is more people getting more access. Totally. 100%. That I love. Same. It's what, like, what would it take to be able to create more access? I think it would take a complete upside down flip of our culture to really value actual wellness. <laughs> right. And wellness is a spectrum, right? So wellness is not able-bodied and productive and able to hold down a nine to five. It's whatever wellness is for you and knowing that different people need different levels of support. And until we can turn the world upside down, which I just don't think is going to happen while you or I are alive, mm -hmm. this is where we are, you know, mm -hmm. it's painful. It is really painful. And I like to think that one part of my origin story, I guess, that I, you know, my therapist origin story that I didn't speak about, which I kind of just came to me now, is that in some ways I relate to myself as at this stage in my life as like a former activist or like someone who used to be truly, I mean, I'm not kidding, like out fully in the streets, engaging in, you know, acts of civil disobedience, like very almost like shockingly to my older self. But I really hold a lot of very strong convictions about dismantling and reimagining systems right. that are oppressive and, and doing something about it. And I do see right. the work that we're doing as an extension or like as contributing to collective transformation. Yeah. However, I think that when part of what is so discouraging about our work is when we're doing it in such a way and we're service providers to customers who are expecting something else right. that doesn't feel like the kind of therapy or therapist that I aspire to be. Right. So transactional. Yes, it's transactional and it's sort of like prescribing someone some kind of like detox when I don't believe in that form of wellness cultural, you know, expectations at all. Right. You know, right. so I really want to be I'm trying to be more in alignment with some of these parts of myself that are maybe I'm not an activist like smashing windows of Starbucks in the WTO protests or whatever, which I'm not saying I did do that or didn't do that, but I'm just saying like, <laughs> cannot confirm that, was or deny. Long, that was a long time ago, but mm -hmm. that part of me, the spark of that, that part of me yeah. is still here and really wanting to believe that there can be something disruptive actually about the work mm -hmm. that we're doing with our clients and reparative, but disruptive and kind of subversive, right. you know, and I do mm -hmm. want to believe that. Do I 
feel that way on most days? No. But when I zoom out, I'm like, it's pretty cool what we do. It's just also a slog. It's both. Yeah. I want to take this topic and run with it. And so I'm acknowledging we're probably not going to get to the healer and wounded healer question. And I don't care because I think this part is more important. But hearing you talk about being a disruptor, being subversive, I find I guess I have been surprised recently to recognize that therapists are a very fearful people in general. Interesting. I, of course, have fear, but I do the thing anyway because I want to be subversive and challenging and, you know, change the world sort of thing. And I guess I want to continue to invite that, like, I think social workers at our core are shit starters. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I identify with. And I have a really hard time identifying with the mindset of letting fear stop you from doing the thing just because it might piss somebody off. It's not a question, but I figure we can keep talking about it. I have a lot of empathy for, you know, I work quite a bit consulting with newer clinicians and I have a lot of empathy for the fear that gets instilled in people in our profession, especially when it comes to like, it's almost become privileged financially speaking to be a shit starter, like disruptive person, right? You know, like the more conformist you are, the safer you are with your income. You can stay on your insurance panels. And I, I empathize with that. And I think that, you know, I've been there, but I also think that, yeah, there does need to be a kind of reckoning with what is possible within this field or within the field of care work, right? Yeah. And that's why I like to expand it and look at some people I admire are therapists or psychoanalysts or whatever, but some people, like a lot of the people I admire and kind of draw on their work are activists or are organizers or whatever. And so I think that there's something about really addressing the limitations that we put on ourselves in terms of like what can happen in, for example, I guess in a Zoom room at this point, but what can happen in someone's office or what can happen, you know, what can transpire between you and a practice or you and your patients. Mm -hmm. So I'm always looking for examples of people that Mm -hmm. can kind of keep me from getting caught in like a hamster wheel of providing services and diagnosing people. And, you know, that just, it's like a, it's really uninspiring and very depleting and really depressing Mm -hmm. and boring. Yeah. 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 Well, and I'm thinking everybody who becomes a therapist has a master's degree. So there's a certain amount of privilege that we all hold. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if more Maybe if there are like more of us setting that example of being subversive and stepping out there and recognizing like this is part of divesting our privilege is sticking our necks out. And I hold therapists to a really high standard. I want to call us into account of divesting our privilege, being the ones on the front lines, not necessarily figuratively smashing Starbucks windows. But but really, if we are not calling attention to the issues in our field, because, you know, it's going to cost us our cushy hospital job. Like, then what are we doing? I'm not intending to criticize. I'm intending to sort of like just bring attention and maybe light some fires, you know. And open 
up possibilities. I mean, that's part of our job within the like actual individual or group encounters is to like help people to open up possibilities when their nervous systems are flooded and they're overwhelmed and they can't imagine Mm -hmm. like life beyond tomorrow or whatever, you know, I mean, I think we are good at that. That is a skill that we have is to kind of be curious and imagine possibilities. And I think it is a sort of speaking to what you're saying. It isn't a criticism. It's sort of like we could align ourselves with the people, the movements of people who are also imagining possibilities, imagining unimaginable futures, you know, the like Adrian Marie Brown, like imagining something that we haven't seen yet or so many people, you know, like Mm -hmm. including, I'll say back to Starbucks, including the Starbucks workers who are all organizing and unionizing. Like, yeah, cool. Right. I just want to say for the record, (laughs) things transform, like systems really do transform. So Ours can too, but it is really in the beginning stages, I would say, of like these conversations happening. Yeah. Well, I hope that the conversation that you and I are having today and the other conversations that I have with guests who are also aligned with this is sort of part of that. That's how I consider my contribution. I might not be smashing Starbucks windows, but I'm trying to elevate these ideals. Yeah, you definitely are. I mean, that's why I'm here. I really feel that way about the work that you're doing, you know? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to take that in. Yeah. For real. (sighs) Thank you. Thank you. Well, this time has flown by and I'm like mad about it. Like if I didn't have to go get my hair cut, I would be like, can you just stay for three more hours and you just keep this going? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope this is the beginning of many, many more conversations. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, there's so much more we could talk about. We didn't even talk about queerness or anything. So cool. Well, do you want to share with folks where they can find you and, and what stuff you've got coming up that people might be able to join? Yeah, sure. I would love to. The best place to find out about me is at my website, livinginthisqueerbody.com or Instagram, same, livinginthisqueerbody. I have a couple things that are coming up that I'm pretty excited about. One of them is the first weekend retreat, um, which is virtual, but that Kintsugi Therapist Collective, Onyx and I are running. It's going to be in December. So it's sort of a a weekend-long condensed version of our year-long program. And it should be really cool. It's the idea is, you know, it's called Mending with Gold. And Mm. so the idea is really to help care workers reconnect with why they do the work they're doing Mm -hmm. and how to continue to do it more sustainably. So essentially this conversation that we've been having. Yeah. You can find out more about that on my website and I will be running in the spring embodied testimony, which is a three month long program that I run every year that I started when I started the podcast. And the topic this year is sick and tired. And so I think there are probably a few people out there who can relate to that. And we're going to be talking (laughs) a lot about and exploring chronic illness, disability, and things like long COVID and breathing a lot and reflecting a lot. And so you can find out more about that. I love that program. It's like sort of my little gem. Mm, Beautiful. Yeah. Thanks for letting me tell people about my work. 
Absolutely. Anytime. Well, thank you for being a a friend of the podcast. And I, I look forward to future connections with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Asher for being a kick-ass guest today. For more information about Asher, you can go to our website at www.headhearttherapy.com podcast. And thanks as always to the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for our album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.